Nothing is so beautiful as spring, wrote poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, and those of us who've experienced the harder-than-normal Wyoming winter and longer-than-normal Wyoming winter can only shout a grateful amen. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Father Gerard Manley Hopkins lived 1844 to 1889, and he's considered to be one of the greatest poets of the Victorian era, though oddly enough, the Victorian era never read Hopkins. While imitating his father, he wrote poetry as he was growing up. He burned all that early poetry when he decided to become, of all things, a Roman Catholic priest. He was brought up Anglican. And after he became a priest, initially, he wrote no poetry. And his later poetry, the poems we have today, were only published 30 years after his death. One of those poems is entitled Spring. And I asked Dr. Glenn Arbery to read the poem for us before telling us about it. Nothing is so beautiful as spring when weeds and wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. Thrushes eggs look little low heavens and thrush through the echoing timber does so rinse and wring the ear it strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. The glassy pear tree leaves and blooms they brush the descending blue. That blue is all in a rush with richness. The racing lambs too have fared their fling. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden garden. Have, get, before it cloy, before it cloud, Christ Lord, and sour with sinning. Innocent mind and mayday in girl and boy. Most, O oh maid's child, thy choice and worthy the winning. Well, as you said, this is a sonnet. Tell us about that. What is a sonnet and why did Hopkins write so many? A sonnet is a 14 line poem written in iambic pentameter, and there are two different basic forms. One's called the Shakespearean sonnet which has three quatrains, you know, four lines with rhymes that are new in each of the quatrains, and then an ending couplet. That has a certain kind of poetic effect. You know, you can sort of build it and then turn everything in the last two lines. Like, if this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, no, no man ever loved, you know, Shakespeare, the way Shakespeare ends one of his. But uh, the other kind, which is really I think more common and probably gets more at what you could almost think of as the ideal form of the sonnet. It has an eight-line part called the octave and a six-line part called the sestet. And the octave is linked together by rhymes as this poem is, if you hear it, you know, um, lush, thrush, fling, ring, sing, you know, all those rhymes uh, that keep repeating. And then the six-line part, answers it, comments on it, you know, what's set up in the, in the first eight lines. So here you get all the description of spring, and then you get a kind of commentary and questioning about what this, what this is all about, in effect. So uh, that's, I think, a form that Hopkins really likes. He, he plays with it in various ways all the time. 
is a poem called The Windhover, which is 14 lines, but it just explodes the number of, of um, syllables, you know, per line, and just keeps expanding it, <laughs> playing with it. So purest of the sonnet forms, think of, sonnet, uh, think of Hopkins as a little bit of a transgressor in this regard, but they're so wonderful. Who could, who could uh, really argue long? Well, okay, the first, the first stanza, the octave. octave o- yeah. The octave. It appears to be nothing more than a description of the coming of spring. Yeah. I mean, is, is it more than that? Well, or to it? here we are in Wyoming. It's April 5th. We got about a foot and a half of snow yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> when you just hear spring described, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But yeah, it's, I think it's, it's more than that. Though he really wants to try to bring across the full quality of, of what you're looking at in the spring. So it's both descriptive and, and kind of, again, exploding from you know, the usual way that things are described. So notice all the alliteration, you know, when weeds and wheels shoot long and lovely and lush, you know, he's really making you pay attention to them. And, and he'll, he'll do uh, little tricks with the language, thrushes eggs, look little low heavens. Ordinarily, you'd say look like little low heavens, but when you make it look little low heavens, he sort of uh, makes a, the verb have more power to it. Thrushes egg, look, look little low heavens. And thrush through the echoing timber to so rents and rain. And then he'll, he brings that line over to the next line, the ear. It strikes like lightnings to hear him saying. So you're, you're getting uh, um, all the sound effects of, of the line, which are pretty prominent the thrush through the echoing timber to so rinse and ring the ear, you know, with a, with a kind of pun on ring. It's spelled here W-R-I-N-G. So, you know, it's, it's like ringing out a rag. It's ringing the ear in both that sense, I guess. You know, it's sort of getting everything it can out of the ear and also the, the ringing sound of it. And like lightning, not like, yeah. not, not like thunder. Right. It strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. So it's like something visual. You know, you see the lightning. Right. Like, not like thunder. You know, more, more something um, instant and, and penetrating and vivid that uh, is, is what those thrushes' sounds are like. Well, and unexpected. I yeah. Mean, you see the flash, you know the thunder's coming. Exactly. But you don't know the flash is coming. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And this, um, this, this is what the thrush sounds like. And there are other ways that, that Hopkins kind of plays with your expectation as he goes through the poem. There's a line, I sort of wish everybody had the poem in front of them because you, you, know, you can see what he's doing. The glassy pear tree leaves and blooms. And those sound like he's playing with those words as verbs. The, the glassy pear tree leaves, that is, it you know, breaks into leaf and blooms. And then in the next, it has a comma, they brush the descending blue. And then you realize, no, 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 those weren't verbs, they were nouns, Mm -hmm. leaves and blooms. But he's kind of got it both ways in the way that he writes the line. So a a noun can't remain a noun. 
you know, it, it kind of has a verbal quality to it in the sense that it's doing something. Leaves, you know, are leaving, so to speak, um, leafing and blooms are blooming. They brush the descending blue. That blue is all in a rush with richness. So it's just, you know, it's sort of over brimming description to get back to your original question. It's not just description, but something that's kind of at every point um, making sort of, sort of exceeding the, the boundaries of, of usual, the usual way you would say and think things. Well, and we normally think spring, we think green. Yeah. And yet he's got blue, right. including thrush eggs that right. are in fact blue. That's yeah. why they're that's why they're little heavens. Yeah, they look like little heavens. Or look little little heavens. Yeah. And yeah, no no green to speak of. The descending blue, the blue is all in a rush. Right. So there's a kind of Marian theme. That that's you, what I was gonna ask you because he then goes on to talk about May. Right. So there this this kind of theme that's subtly injected into the poem. The racing lambs too have fared their fling. When my wife and I were in Ireland some years ago, you know, right around this time of the year, there were all these you know, newborn lambs bouncing around and, and you get the um, feel of that here with you know, a little Easter overtone maybe, right? and particularly with the Marian suggestion lying behind the lines. These racing lambs, this is a, what a lamb ought to feel like, you know, not like the sacrifice lamb, maybe. And the second stanza begins with the, with the question, what is all this juice and all this joy? We're on a new track here. Is this a reference to Eden? Uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, it seems like it has at least a faint echo of Dante in the top of Mount Purgatory. Yeah, um, it's certainly the earthly paradise. You're glimpsing, you know, when you see this kind of superabundance of, of things going on in spring. What is all this juice or all this sap? Everything is rising. Everything, you know, is so full of life. A strain, <coughs> excuse me, a strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden Garden, right? This is a little glimpse of, of what Eden was like that sweet being in the beginning, you know. And then another kind of break there, have, get before it cloy, before it cloud. How do you hold on to this moment of such exuberant innocence? The worry here is that it's gonna cloy, meaning, you know, you get too much of it, you can't, can't quite take it, it's too sweet, too much of too sweet but you have to get this just in the right moment before it sours with sinning. Innocent mind in May Day and girl and boy, most, O oh maid's child, thy choice and worthy the winning. And I think this is where you kind of circle back around in a very interesting way to the Easter theme. Worthy the winning, winning how, right? How do you win back this kind of Edenic innocence? And then that takes you back to the racing lambs. It takes you back to the, you know, a kind of sacrificial theme that's very subtly embedded in the poem. And, you know, he doesn't want to take away anything, I think, from this sense of joy, but he does want to make this prayer 
in effect, at the end, most, O maid's child, thy choice and worthy to winning, this kind of innocence. The, the maid's child being Jesus. Being Jesus, yeah. right, yeah. So what is it that um, he does to, you know, to win that back? And that's, of course, you know, his suffering and death. And, and I think also you, you feel in this poem something of the joy of the resurrection, which liturgically, uh, you know, we, we always celebrate Easter in the spring. So there's, a, there's another kind of natural uh, undergirding to the idea of, of um, what's going on in the poem. Would you read for us again? Sure, I'd love to. Spring, nothing is so beautiful as spring when weeds and wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. Thrushes' eggs look little low heavens and thrush through the echoing timber just so rents and ring the ear it strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. The glassy pear tree leaves and blooms. They brush the descending blue. That blue is all in a rush with richness. The racing lambs too have fair their fling. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden garden. Have, get, before it cloy, before it cloud, Christ, Lord, and sour with sinning. Innocent mind and May Day and girl and boy, most, O maid's child, thy choice and worthy the winning. In 1986, gospel artist Sandy Patty wrote and sang a resurrection song entitled, Was It a Morning Like This? The chorus of that song has haunted me ever since. Sandy Patty and I wonder about that first Easter morning. Quote, Did the grass sing? Did the earth rejoice to feel you again? Over and over, like a trumpet underground, did the earth seem to pound? He is risen. Over and over, in a never-ending round, he is risen. Alleluia. Alleluia. Wishing you a joyful Easter. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.